Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Professional Development, a podcast by educators talking about education, especially from the teacher's perspective. Uh, my name is Marcus Luther. I'm an English teacher out here in Oregon, and I am joined by... Good afternoon, everyone, or morning, or whenever you listen to this. Uh, my name is Jim Maris. I teach 11th grade English in Boston, Massachusetts. Awesome. And today, we just wanted to kind of pause the broader conversations and seek a little bit of what we've talked about and just take a snapshot of how we're feeling going into this school year as teachers, especially given the circumstances of we have a Delta variant, rising cases around the country and schools adjusting with policies kind of slap shot a little bit. They're different everywhere. There's a lot of changes. There's a lot of outcry. But at the end of the day, teachers are going to be meeting their students they already have in some cases in early August. Right now, it's Saturday, August 14th that we're recording this. Uh, we'll be meeting our students either at the end of this month or the beginning of next month and just kind of like reflecting on where our heads are at. So, Jimmy, your kids are coming in even sooner than mine. Where is your head at right now? Like, what are the things like on the top of your mindset? Yeah, yeah. Um, I I'm. To be honest with you, I'm like, I'm all over the place in, in a lot of ways. I am not confident in, mm-hmm. I'm definitely not as confident in a lot of sort of the typical back to school routines and, and sort of classroom culture type stuff that I have been sort of used to uh, in the past. Um, there definitely is like, I don't want this. And I, I, I 100% think that we need to be back to school in person. Um, I definitely think that's the right call, but I'm just worried and anxious that we might have to pivot, to be honest. Like my head is like, there could be, a, there could, really could be a very significant mutation in the virus that is much more dangerous. Um, we could start to see, especially with children who are unvaccinated, like we could see that become worse. We already see rising cases of children who are becoming sicker and sicker and um, that is not acceptable and just kind of there's somewhere like deep inside me that is very fearful of um, the worst case scenario which would be we are required to pivot back online but that that said I'm I'm preparing um, I'm preparing my classes and my my curriculum like that's not going to happen because I have to assume and want to assume that that's not going to happen. Um, but there's just, there's, for me, there's this added level of just anxiety and stress and like, and couple that right with, I know already that my 11th graders who are going to be coming, I'm close friends with the 10th grade teachers who, who, who taught my kids, my rising kids, last year. And I'm really lucky. I'm cycling up with another group of kids with AP seminar this year. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is I know that they're not going to be as prepared as they, as, as I typically have seen 11th graders be in the past. And so I'm trying to think about, okay, what's my pacing going to look like? What's my, what's the reading culture that I'm going to build? If I know that I need to create like a much longer on-ramp for a lot of the more rigorous texts that we're going to be building uh, up towards throughout the year. How do I build reading stamina? Like what's kids' emotional state going to be? I've already had parent meetings and parent phone calls. I was on the phone yesterday with with, with, with the father of one of my advisees, and he was saying to me, how nervous he is for his daughter and and how anxious she is about returning to 
um, in-person learning. So yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's this like tempered excitement, I think is the best way to describe it where I'm, I genuinely am so excited to see the kids and get back into the, in, in the classroom and get some of these routines going and, um, and start building that classroom culture, which I think you and I, I think that's one of the central reasons that both you and I are still in the classroom, like that. hundred percent. Yeah. I agree. Um, but it's, it's, it's tempered. And it, I do have a lot of um, really significant just questions and things that are out of my control. And I try not to focus on that, but it, it's sort of hard to not, not think about that stuff. Yeah. And for context, even as we're talking, other schools, especially in the, the South have started and opened up and there's a lot of schools that have either pivoted to online. They've had massive quarantines. We're not talking like a handful. We're talking about a almost in some cases, more than half the student body in quarantine. Uh, a lot of these schools are schools that don't have mask mandates for students, but still we know that already a school year that I think a lot of people, myself all cop to it, were hoping for a more normal start because of circumstances. It's not, that's not where we're at. Uh, and right. it could get worse. And I think uh, I want to push back, not push back, but I want to, ask for clarification on something you said, though, as I was listening, you said you don't think a lot of the students walking into your class this year will be as prepared as possible. Mm -hmm. You kind of unpacked that a little bit, but my question is how much does that matter? Like in the big scheme of things, Mm -hmm. because there's going to be a lot of people talking about learning loss, we got to ramp up the, you know, have some urgency, like day one, hit the ground running to make up for all this lost learning. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily hundred percent against some of that, but I also mm-hmm. just want to, when you say not as prepared, what is your mindset approaching that as a teacher? Yeah, I think that's a good, totally fair question. A very good one. Um, on, you know, in some sense, it doesn't matter, right? I think in some sense, it doesn't matter at all because you're going to walk into school and there's going to be 20 kids sitting in your classroom and it's your job to meet them wherever they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it met to me where my mindset is like, I am probably going to be more, more. Um, I guess I, I guess one thing that comes to mind for me when I'm thinking about this is being much more intentional, which is which is a good teacher practice anyways, um, but being much more intentional about throwing like a Robespierre speech at them in September and saying, we're going to have a reading quiz on this tomorrow. Like I'm, I'm going to be uh, a lot more intentional this year in terms of like really figuring out where is their skill level um, which of course, arguably I sh- I should have been doing that the first time I threw a Rose Pierre mm-hmm. speech at them. Right. But like, what is their skill level? And just, just kind of basically giving myself the whole month of September to figure out like who's reading at what levels and what the reading stamina is going to be like. Uh, cause as you know, in AP lane, that really does matter quite a lot. Um, and but also kind of in a broader picture, like the, just some of the academic habits, like always with high schoolers, like it, like you want them to be a little bit more organized and like know how to prioritize their time. And um, I think that, I think that um, 
the lack of structure, like, I, again, I, I've been having all these parent meetings recently. So that's kind of coming to mind, all the, all that's coming to mind. But I, I had a, a separate parent meeting also yesterday, where um, one of my advisees' parents basically was talking to me about how the way that she, the, the struggle that she had with him and remote learning was because school was online, quote unquote, that there was this sort of false mindset that he could do all of his homework whenever he wanted. Because when you're a teacher, or excuse me, when you're a teenager, your decision-making <laughs> systems and your brain are not fully developed. So maybe you think you can get this paper done in 30 minutes so that you can play Call of Duty until 10 p.m., um, but you really shouldn't. But when you have an in-person routine and schedule, like I do think that that level of structure is sort of baked into the lives of teenagers that helps them um, make better decisions in some ways. But I think those are the two major things, like just kind of being a little bit more like ready to slow down depending on where, once I like see where the kids um, reading levels are at, and then I can kind of go fast or go slow depending on what they need. Uh, and then the overall level of like, how much reading am I assigning? What am I expecting them to do on a nightly basis? That kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I want to stick with this because I think this is a, a, going into the school year is going to be a challenge for every teacher to encounter on their own systemically. There's going to be a lot of pressure to speed up. And it's gonna, you're going to monitor yep. where they're at, realize if you're looking at your typical end goal, like an AP exam or any goal you're trying to achieve by the end of the year with student learning, they're probably, there's good indicators already we have that they're going to be further away than in a typical year. And the normal response is, how do I speed up? How do I cover more material? Mm-hmm. And that might not be the best thing for all students in this given year. And I think uh, I was in a training this last week and continued. We were talking a lot about the lens of uh, equity versus equality in terms of policy. And I think a lot of this year, I'm actually proud of the education system for this, leaned into more of an equity push in terms of meeting students where they're at, whether it was uh, limiting late work penalties or being more generous and flexible with students, given the, I don't want to use the word unprecedented, uh, but essentially that's where we were at, uh, circumstances we were in, we were trying to really lean into meeting kids where they were at individually and Mm -hmm. getting rid of some of the barriers to them feeling successful given that. And I think I had a lot of students, that's exactly what they needed. I had other students tell me that made it harder for me because I had more flexibility to wait to the last minute and I missed having those structural complaints. I think, so the question I'm going to ask you on this is I read a quote online and I've been thinking about it And this uh, person, I'll try to maybe put in the show notes. I'll find the person on Twitter who posted it, but said that, I'm not one teacher. I'm a different teacher for every single one of my students. So if you have 150 students, you're 150 teachers. So they really like this exacerbation or emphasis of meeting students where they're at in individualized education. You hear that a lot. You get on Twitter ad, you you see a lot of people talking about that. I've advocated for a lot, but I wonder, is that like, how do you feel about when you hear that quote? Let's just start there. Instead of you Mr. Mayor's teacher, you are a different teacher for every single student. What are the upsides and values of that? And what are the downsides? Yeah, it's a good question. 
did they show that slide in your training with the three different size kids looking over the fence? Oh yeah, we had the, the, the we were actually boxes. we were told and so equity <laughs> the difference of equity and equality for de definition equity is meeting people where they're at given their needs rather than just giving the same to everyone else. So yeah. the classic example of two houses, one is on fire. If you're yeah. being equal, you spray equal amounts of water on both houses. If you're being equitable, you devote far more water to the house that is burning. Uh, so an equitable lens would be not necessarily being equal, but meeting people where they're at. So yeah, thank you for yeah, clarifying. Yeah. No, I just, I laugh because uh, I've seen that slide with the kids. Way too many up, times. Way too yeah. many times, yeah. Uh, it's a good slide though. It's a good slide. Uh, it's a fantastic question, right? Because I think I um, think about this basically all the time. I think most teachers think about this all the time. And honestly, my first reaction, I do sort of bristle a little bit at that quote because I'm at least right now, and I think people kind of have these different um, ideological evolutions probably throughout their career, but I'm in this place right now where I just sort of simply think that far too much is demanded and expected of a teacher's time in general, right? So if you say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work 70, 80 hours a week. Um, if you look at if you look, if you itemize all of the things that sort of we think teachers can do, execute on within, within a given work period uh, or within, within a given, like, this is what my teacher should be doing. I think that becomes sort of romanticized very quickly, right? So it's like, well, um, you know, Johnny struggles with his reading. So let's have Mr. Maris just meet with him for 15 minutes after school uh, so that he can help them. And, oh, let's, why don't I just give you a call? Um, why don't you just meet me on your lunch break? Oh, your free second period. Let's, let's, we need to have an IEP meeting second period. Um, you know, the list, the list goes on and on and on, right? And so my first response to that is to bristle a little bit and say, okay, what are the leadership and the administrative supports that the teacher is being coached on and provided with? Sorry, my dog is growling a little bit. You're, it's okay. I, I'm sure the dog's just reacting to the same <laughs> yeah, she's, sentiments that we are. Yeah. Yeah. She's not upset about the demands that are put on my time. Um, <laughs> so my first, my first response to that is, okay, you want me to be 150 different teachers. Um, tell me, let's take a look at my calendar and why don't you help me literally go hour by hour throughout the week to think about the different ways that I'm going to be grading uh, and assessing these things, the, the different um, periods of time where I'm going to be creating the, first, creating the first unit plan, creating those unit assessments, and then going back over those and uh, differentiating all of those different things for different types of students, right? Um, so to me, Yes, you, sh you can and should become an expert in differentiation. And there are ways, of course, to build organized, sustainable systems to, to have that. But I've been teaching now for a long time, and, I, and I'm sort of barely okay at it. Um, and I really think that unless you are in the classroom, it becomes incredibly easy to say, oh, well, just do X, Y, and Z thing. 
um, in order to meet this one specific student. Um, the teacher's job is, is to meet all students, okay? Yeah. And so you have a hundred, you're only one person, okay? You're only one person. And the reality, the reality is that time is not infinite. And if you want, do you want me to be working for you for 90 hours a week for four years? Or do you want me to be working for you for 50, 60 hours a week for 40 years? And that's the question that I want to pose to anyone who is making assertions and demands on teachers' time. That's just, in my mind, unsustainable because I think that those demands get made very easily um, Mm -hmm. and, and not not with a whole lot of forethought and respect for, for what teachers are facing on a day-to-day basis. No, I really appreciate that. And I also think that also connects to this current moment of what a lot of teachers are going through uh, in other parts of the country uh, who are going back to a a workplace environment where they don't feel safe or they don't feel their students are safe. And quite honestly, like that is what's harder for me is if I'm, I are my first priority is that a student feels safe in my classroom. And if the pro policies and protocols aren't put in place for me to make my classroom a safe place. And I just honestly, right now don't believe that's happening everywhere. Uh, just being a teacher, like that's a part of my identity. It's a part of your identity. And I think there's going to be a lot of consequence for some short-term decision-making of what we're seeing around the country right now. A lot of teachers have already, I've, you know, have walked away, uh, will be burnt out by the end of this sequence. And I think in the same way, we need to prioritize student care and making sure students as people are okay before we worry about what percentage score they get on the end of year test. We mm-hmm. also need to make sure teachers are okay. And the other thing, building off of what you said of teachers being asked to do too much often, it's just quantifiable hours. There isn't enough time to do the job in the job. I think there also is a temptation sometimes that I've heard in past years from administrators and leaders to say, oh, just take care of yourself. Don't worry oh, yeah. about it. I and, you know, just like confine yourself to the, but then they still expect so, the same results. And I think that's uh, probably like a triggering thing for me sometimes <laughs> to hear is like, they'll say, oh, don't worry about it. Take care of yourself, but then yeah. expect the same results. And it's yeah. like, there's gotta be a pathway there. And I think yeah. there that can be hard. And I think in this given moment is hard. So I think in the same way that we are going to be showing up, hopefully for our students to make sure that we create channels for them to communicate to us where they're at, how they're doing as learners, but also Mm -hmm. as people going into the school year, it's imperative that administrators and school leaders are doing the same with their teaching staff. Cause I'm sure right now there's a lot of teachers who are struggling at a personal level just being back at work. And that's, and I've said this before on this podcast, teachers are not the only people having to go to work in really difficult circumstances. And not to mention the medical field, people who've been, you know, we were, teachers were at home, thankfully for a lot of health reasons early on, while a lot of people were not at home and having to put their families at risk in the early stages of COVID. So I want to acknowledge that, but that doesn't mean that we can't prioritize teacher health, mental health in this year, because the, the long-term consequences of the teaching profession feeling as if it was not respected and valued in this most pivotal moment will have an attrition and we will lose quality teachers. We will lose oh, yeah. the rapport and the belief in what we're doing. 
if people don't value that, and I worry when you add in like the critical race protests and all yeah. of the things going on around the country, this is a really hard moment to be a teacher. And I'm not downplaying the student perspective, but I wonder, are we talking enough about making sure teachers are taken care of going into the school year? Because I think it's going to be a tidal wave. This is my yeah. personal oh, uh, yeah. belief. I'm super worried about that. And I'm 100% with you. Nothing makes me more angry at any type of teacher. As soon as the words self-care come out of a teach of a at any, and I will say this is not directed at my current administration because ditto for um, me. This they, is a way back in the day thing. They don't do this, um, and also my um, my I I do I disagree with with some of the leadership at, at my school on some things, but overall I have a lot of respect for them because. They're like, look, you chose to work here. This is, these are the hours and they're upfront about that. And they, they try to build sustainable systems, but, um, you know, my principal says you're contracted till four plus an hour mm -hmm. of, of every day. And so I, for me, it's just like, okay, fine. I'm going to stay till five. Um, because, you know, she tries to design sort of systems and, and I am at a place right now where I'm out of the building every day by five and, um, that I can do the job, but that, you know, that's only after a lot of experience. And um, one sort of quick point that I wanted to make here, right, though, like, all right, if a parent, if you're a parent, and you're sort of imagining the amount of time that your teacher spends evaluating your kid's work, and especially in high school, I think that it's pretty easy to, as a parent, imagine that your kid's English teacher is going to spend 20, 30 minutes per week reading your kid's work, the essays, the exit tickets, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I have, just to, just to use round, round numbers, you have 100 kids on your roster which is a, a lot, but that's certainly pretty common. If you have 100 kids on your roster, if you budget four minutes per week per kid, that's 6.7 hours of grading per week. I have two prep periods. So that's 10 hours a week. So what that means is I basically have a little over within the school day, I have a little over three hours per week to do all of the other things for teaching that are not related to grading. If I'm very fast and efficient and can grade, can grade work in full, give, I, I'm able, that capacity allows me to give my students literally four minutes per week to review their work. And I think that people need to be thinking about, and, and, you know, and plus I, I said 10 hours per week because I have the two prep periods. Plus I do have another five hours on the back end because I stay after school from four to five. So I crank that, I do sort of crank out a lot of work there. So even that though, call it, you know, call it eight hours per week. That's just not a lot of time to do all the things because one, you got one hour of meet, oh, you got one hour is taken up every week by a coaching meeting, which is fine. Then you got, you know, we got parent phone calls or whatever. That eight hours goes by very, very quickly. And I'm, 
really on this kick right now where a sustainable, effective school needs to have in a, in a normal year, in a normal year needs to have one-to-one instructional to planning time. And by planning time, I mean silent, independent work time where the teacher is able to either grade or plan with, without interruption. Planning time does not mean having, which I'm not saying that stuff is not important. It's absolutely important. You need to make the parent phone calls. You need to have the IEP meetings. You need to have the coaching meetings or the, whatever other PD stuff is going on. Like, yes, but there's just no way around of getting around. There's just, there's no way of um, getting around this capacity issue. And I just, I, I, let me, let me pose this question to you. Do you often feel that this, that this specific problem that we're talking about is met is met with sort of eye rolling and just kind of a, a passive sense of like, oh yeah, wouldn't it be nice if this were true? Um, do, you, I think, do you ever experience that? I think that we are so far away in our current systems and structures and assumptions about what the school day looks like from what it would take to give teachers the real planning time to create their own authentic individualized classrooms like that gap is chasmic is that word i think yeah and i think what happens then is you see a lot of stop gaps you see a lot of oh you know you plan this oh here's this curriculum we bought oh just you know make it work there's a lot of things that are done to try to straddle that but at the end of the day the the teachers especially you know, if you're invested and you love what you're doing, you care about your classroom, you kind of feel like you're always on the straddle where you're being, you're so far apart from where you want to be and where you want your classroom to be in the right. ideal world for your students. And I think that's hard in a normal year. I think yeah. this is a year where we're going to be asked a lot. And I think that last year, there was a lot of grace given to teachers at certain points, uh, at least in my experience, I was very impressed by it. Uh, I think not always the case everywhere, of course, but I think parents gave some grace. students gave incredible grace in my mm-hmm. experience as we were adjusting to this online learning teachers were trying to give grace, like everyone was extending grace and they should have. I worry that we're walking to a school year where the grace levels are depleted. Like we're kind of running on fumes and that's probably teachers included. And summer doesn't just like naturally refill the stocks after what we've been through. And I think what I'm worried about is there's going to be a lot of walls being hit on so many different levels. And I think teachers planning time, what you're bringing up is incredibly important. If we're going to have students quarantining classes canceled, because what happens is you plan out a schedule kind of a, the working assumption that all your students are going to be there every day. And when students are absent, when you have to adjust your schedule, that adds to the planning time. It becomes this pile of adjustments and the adjustments themselves can become the work. And it really can be overwhelming for teachers who may also be struggling with their own uh, healthcare, taking care of people in their family or their circles, just feeling comfortable going into the classroom. And you and I are both saying this for clarity we cannot wait to be back in our classrooms with our kids. Like that is like something I have been long awaiting. I, it was the, one of the best moments last year was when students were back in person for me. Uh, I'm so excited to have them back in person. I'm just trying to go into this year with open eyes of what's going to be happening systemically. Mm -hmm. And I worry about that lack of grace and generosity 
because I think that is at the end of the day, the foundation of a successful school and school culture is having the grace and generosity to see the best and support the best in each other. That takes a lot on all levels and all directions. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried that we're going into the school year with not nearly enough of that thoughts on that. I know I just went off a little bit. What, what, no, I, I appreciate it. I, I totally agree. I think I'm also, I'm worried about that too. I'm, I'm worried because you look at, you look at the community response, like, um, it's amazing to me how quickly people realized like what the work of a school system is once all of their kids had to be home. And there was this outpouring of like, oh my gosh, like my kids learning at home. I never knew teaching was this hard. I have so much more respect for teachers. And then boom, on a dime, it's just like, you are this communist who's going to teach my kid about critical race theory and to hate them because hate themselves because they're white. And also you're a fascist, which are two different ends of the ideological spectrum because you're forcing my kid to wear a mask, um, which is an interesting sort of, I don't know, ideological dilemma uh, that a lot of people don't really seem to know how to square. But the, um, I don't think much grace at all is going to be extended to teachers by, um, especially by people who are upset about masking and people who, I think the whole critical race theory thing is like, to be honest with you, like ultimately going to be like a Mm -hmm. (laughs) non-factor. I think it's just kind of like, like a conservative media talking point. That's like about something that's like just really not happening. Um, which I'm, well, I'll, you know. I'll get Oregon context. And this is, yeah. it's hard to extricate from the mask and the school shutdown thing, but multiple yeah. school boards, not our current one, uh, had a recent elections and fired their uh, superintendents and one school district nearby mm-hmm. uh, banned any political materials, including uh, uh, gay pride flags uh, in the school <laughs> period. So I don't think I'm probably in a little bit more not open eyed. I'm not trying to say that I'm right. You're wrong, yeah. but like, I'm pretty confident that the CRT backlash and I don't agree with you. I do not believe it's founded in reality. A lot of the things that are being said are just blatantly untrue, mm-hmm. but I do think it's going to impact the grace that people extend teachers and totally. it's going to create obstacles for teachers meeting students where they're at and where they need to be met. Because while we are in a pandemic Uh, of COVID, we also like our teachers who are working with students who experience the various systemic inequities of their lives. And I know we, we trauma traumatic year. Yeah. Yeah. And we are talking, of course, both of us as white men approach this with our own limited experiences in that, Mm -hmm. but we're serving students who've experienced different levels of systemic inequity that have been traumatic in their lives at this point. And it'll be an additional barrier for us creating the classroom spaces that they need to feel seen, heard, and affirmed. And that's for me concerning as well, going in on top of all the COVID stuff. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. And it's, and it's um, honestly at the, I sort of, I sort of wish that maybe I had, st- you, you first asked me like, what's on your mind? Like yeah. I responded in a, I responded in a way that was kind of practical because those are some of the like nuts and bolts kind of immediate mm-hmm. um, concerns that I sort of are on my mind. But that right there is the much deeper, larger concern that I have, which is 
okay, fine. I sort of consciously have, like I've signed the bill. I'm, I'm going to agree to a certain level of like working too hard. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like that's whatever that is what it is. But the much larger concern is for me exactly what you're saying like the the lack of the lack of time and capacity and and support and development that we have this year to support kids um and plan adaptive curricula and plan and 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 be supported in slowing down i'm going to give a shout out to i think you know or mia meadows uh from tfark when i was working with mia she she always would say you got to go slow to go fast and that like really sort of pushed me both as an instructional coach and now as a teacher, like it does take time to plan units that are responsive. It, you have to be willing to make adjustments. You have to be willing to say, you know, I have my whole scope and sequence planned out. I have my benchmarks. I have my assessments. I know exactly what everything's going to be before the kids come in, but I, I also know that sometimes they're not going to be ready and that needs to be pushed. And I think that there's like a general expectation from parents that that is what happens in schools, but it's not what happens in schools because oftentimes there is a lot of pressure to be like, boom, 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 hit the standard, get the test. Um, And that's, that's going to be very short-sighted when we come back this year, I think. Yeah, two thoughts on that. First one is that when we talk about what students and families and stakeholders want from education, not everyone wants the same thing. Some people want it to be that boom, boom, boom standard. Like, for instance, uh, teaching an AP course, like last year, just in the first week surveying them in the middle of a pandemic, we're online, limited time, et cetera, and asking, like, what do you want out of this class? You had a range of responses all the way from I would love to be drilled every day for the AP exam to make sure like I pass this with the highest score possible all the way to, I am not taking the AP exam. I want it to be like engaging, flexible. I want this to like prepare me as a college writer. Like, and, the, and then you add in the element from parents and different stakeholders who look at education. We do not have this unified singular idea of what an education is supposed to do. And I think that is beautiful and incredible and part of the complexity of this work, which I am motivated to be a part of. But that does mean when you talk about being 150 different teachers to go back to that, you're also like setting on, you're responding to 150 different visions of what education they want from you as a teacher and what the role of a teacher even is supposed to be. And that's okay. And I think some students are looking for very different things out of the classroom, but engaging with those visions. And I guess I think my first priority to circle back to like, what are you thinking about starting the year is I want to be really intentional this year more than ever about trying to hear and see what students and their families want from me and want from school in general in this moment Mm -hmm. and creating the pathways for them to communicate with me. That's a huge priority because I think that there are a lot of assumptions made in all directions. Teachers making plenty of assumptions, of course, but also I think there's sometimes the assumption that teachers don't want to hear those things. 
and they don't want to know where students are coming from, where families are coming from. And my goal, little tech issue, but we're back. Marcus, uh, why don't you return? You were talking a little bit about some of your big focuses, given all this for the, for the beginning of the year. Yeah, I think given this and given this larger worry about lack of grace and generosity and trust in teachers, I think this year more than ever, one thing that needs to be a priority is asking, re-asking, and doubling back again to ask more of students and their families, what do you want out of your education? What do you need from your teachers? What do you expect of what that you will experience as a student? And creating an ongoing path of communication so they consistently can come to you and let you know how things are doing and how they are doing and how you're doing as a teacher and having that conversation ongoing in an authentic way because that can be done really poorly where it can come off as condescending or as if you're not invested in it as a teacher uh and i think going into this school year that's got to be a priority right away to really so students feel and families feel they can advocate for you to you for their students yeah, I'm sure there's um, some people listening who are curious about about what that looks like because part of part of our conversation, this whole podcast, is is how challenging the time constraints, the demands on the time are going to be. So, what kinds of tool, like how, how are you going to do that? How are you going to create those communication systems in ways that feel manageable? Yeah, and I think this is important too because if you have I in past years given like way too long of surveys. And if you imagine as a student, you're filling out survey after survey, families are filling out survey after survey. I think figuring out what are the most important questions to ask and then asking them and really being intentional about not just responding to them individually, but showing that feedback. And what I mean by this is instead of giving a 40 question survey your first day with your students, which uh, you never really return to, or at which least you I, never <laughs> even do the math, hundred students, 40 questions, what? 4,000 no. questions. Yeah, through. absolutely not. Uh, you don't return it's just, to it. you don't return to it. But if you pick two to three authentic questions about how they're doing and what they expect and you read through and respond. And then let's say for me on family communication, one target is, slowly over the first month, trying to make one positive call, introductory call home, making a list of who I can't contact and then working from there. Again, these are things that take time, but I believe the start of the year investing that time is a long-term payoff. Uh, So you're really building off those small, short, targeted responses. And then the other thing I'm doing is, let's say I ask every student in the classroom, one of the questions is I gave in this past year is, how has school been for you as an experience in your life up to this point? One through seven, seven, super positive and supportive all the way to one. Then we're going to put the pie chart of the responses of that survey in front of the class. And we're going to have a conversation about it so that not only am I knowing their individual responses, they're seeing how different people in that class have a different experience with education. We're going to talk about why that is. Then I can use a student's response. Let's say a student responded as a one or a two. That really helps me when I call home or make that first contact with the family or stakeholder to know that this is a student who does not feel that they have been supported up to this point before they walk into my room versus six or seven, different conversation. So being intentional about what you're doing and making sure every minute matters because we just don't have a lot of minutes like you were talking about. So that's one example of like a tangible strategy. Yeah, I love that. One thing I, what I, in particular, what I like about this strategy is um, finding a way 
this is true for a culture survey like what you're describing. It's also true for academic data, um, but it's finding a way to show everyone in the class that not everyone is having their experience. Yeah. And I think that's an important step, especially for high school kids. Like you've got the, you've got the kid who is staying up super late at night and is really stressing out about the fact that they have like a 94 instead of a 97. And I just want to sit that kid down and say, just go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Versus the kid who is just sort of giving up at 8 p.m. and saying, whatever, I'm not going to pass the reading quiz tomorrow anyway, so I might as well play Call of Duty. Like, if, if we can create, and high school kids are responsible enough to sort of recognize these things with each other, they generally want each other to succeed, which is one of the reasons I love working with high school kids. And I think that is always is always really helpful um to show the class that everyone in the room right now is going through something a little bit different um and that kind of reset that creates an opportunity for kids to be vulnerable to reset and it also sort of normalizes at the same time that everyone's going through things that are a little bit different there's also two or three people in the classroom that are feeling the same way as me. And so I'm not the only one who is really bummed out about X, Y, and Z thing or whatever. And I think that's like any time you can do that as a teacher, it's, it's really powerful. Yeah. And then another thing I'd add in that I think this is just Marcus's way of looking at those first weeks. And I want to have all my stuff together to, mm -hmm. I'd, I'd use a different word if I didn't want cuss. Right. Uh, yeah. Like, and I say that in that you only get one chance to make a first impression with your students. Mm -hmm. So regardless of what's going on in the pandemic, yep. in terms of your political philosophy or concerns about school, they're going to walk into Mr. Luther's classroom for the first time once. Mm -hmm. And I want to pour all my eggs into making that the best possible day experience and my first communication home and like those first couple of weeks. And I'm not saying, and this is not to like stress new teachers out. I'm not saying you can't make mistakes. These are going to be long-term relationships. You don't pick, yeah. you know, make these relationships and reports happen in one day, but you can ruin them or you can at least put yourself way far back. It's almost like to use the sports analogy, like some NFL teams and sports teams, they'll actually script out their first drive. So they know when they get the ball, these are the 10 plays we're going to run because we're going to run them really well. We really don't care what happens and then we'll adjust from there. Mm -hmm. So I really like, I will sneak up to the school and like walk through. I've had teachers like walk down the hallways and wondering what he's doing. Like I am walking through and pacing and timing out every single little transition adjustment PowerPoint slide from those first few days. Cause I want those to come across as really well thought out and intentional so simultaneously, I can be very transparent with students about when, hey, I'm not sure about this. I, you know, be, and be vulnerable with them about certain aspects of my life and my role as a teacher, things I'm worried about. But I think you have to do both. I think you have to, you can't just jump off the diving board with vulnerability and say how much you're struggling as a teacher when you are also in charge of those students and their education and their well-being. So I think it's a both and. It's something that you want to be incredibly invested and prepared, but at the same time, incredibly authentic and open about what you're still struggling with and worried about as a teacher. Yeah. 
I wrote a little bit about this um, when I was working on my my master's degree. Like mm-hmm. I think I ha- I haven't read enough about it, but I have this kind of working theory from my experience that essentially the older the kids become in high school, the more essential their the more essential the first weeks of school are for them. Mm-hmm. Because I think that by the time, you know, I've been working for juniors now for a while. By the time a kid comes to me as a junior in high school, they have a decade plus of experiences and messages and successes and failures that tell them a story of what kind of student they are. And if that story is not a positive one, it can be much harder to convince them that this year could be different for them than it could be to convince a fourth grader or fifth grader, sixth grader, whatever of that. And I don't necessarily have a very good answer for that, but that is something going back to going back to some of my concerns about um, sort of being willing to modify and adapt and adjust as necessary, being a little bit worried about where the kids are coming in. That is something that I do worry a lot about is my own ability as, as an, as a high school teacher, who's teaching kids later in high school. If I have a, if I, if I have a kid who doesn't have a great story about themselves in terms of being a scholar, in terms of their overall relationship to the school, then what, what are some of my intentional tools to be able, and, and the only true concrete tool that needs to happen for them to change is to authentically earn an A. And that's, you know, that's where we can talk about standards-based grading and the importance of rubrics and all that kind of stuff. But until, until they really authentically earn an A and they know it and you know it and you celebrate that in the class, it's hard. It is hard to change that, that narrative for that kid. Can you talk about why, I'm just curious and uh, pushing back and forth, Yeah. why authentically earning an A is the top of the mountain for you, for all those students who are struggling walking in? Because kids are really smart, even if they don't, if they do not have a great academic story about themselves, that doesn't mean they're not incredibly smart. And so you can't, you can't just sit there and say, you can't, because of false praise is the short answer. Like if, if you're giving a kid false praise, they, they know. And so if, if you are over the moon, when they give you like a two sentence exit ticket, that, that can be, that can, that can be, I don't think destroy the relationship, but they're, they're not going to be invested in that feedback. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to think about is creating like authentic pathways where they can, they can really, even if it takes more time than other students, I want them to be able to unlock, seriously unlock and, and reach for strong rhetorical analysis with really complex texts and put, and transition that analysis onto the page in, in really strong writing. Um, and that's what I mean when I say like authentically earning an A, when they, when they, when they can get it and when they can get the essay fully complete 
that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. But don't you think those first weeks are not about that? I mean, they're not about false praise, but they're about, at least I would argue, trying to find ways to affirm that you see and understand who they are as people, even before who you they are as students. Because yes. at least yes. I, I think if, if you're just looking through, I, I know you don't do this, but like if you're just looking at it through the academic lens and that's all your focus is on, these, a lot of students walk in, and I know this because they said on surveys or I've talked to them about this, they don't feel like their teachers care about them. And one of the mistakes I made way early on in my career, because I felt like my teachers cared about me by my lived experience, I projected that. And uh, I realized after year one that not all my students thought I cared about them. And I deeply, deeply cared about them. And I was like, I didn't understand why they didn't think that. Mm-hmm. And I realized like, I need to be explicit about some things. And those first couple of weeks, that has to do with whole group messaging and how I message myself and introduce myself as a teacher, but also in terms of the conversations and responses I give to them in their initial uh, writings, uh, reflections. I need them to know that I care about them as a person, that I value their growth, regardless of where they're at walking into the classroom and that they are a part of our classroom community, period, non-negotiable. And I think how to make that become a reality in your classroom as a teacher, totally up to you. Yeah. That has to be a priority. Like that is my, like, I will stand, draw the line and say, if you're on the other side of it, get out of the teaching profession. (laughs) Like, sorry. Like, yeah, yeah. No, I'm totally with you. I think, um, I think, you know, the, that experience that I'm talking about could have that, that experience for them might not happen until second semester. No. Right. You know what what I mean? Like I, I, and I think you're totally right. Like there's definitely a lot of ways even beyond, I, I still to this day have, I have had students who have failed my class come back to me and say, your class was real, like Mm -hmm. really impactful for me. And I was like, oh, really? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not in like a negative way, but it's just surprised. Like I didn't think you liked the class or whatever, but I think you're absolutely right. Like there, there definitely needs to be a two-pronged approach. Um, not two-pronged approach, just like a, a, um, a very authentic where you're leaning in and recognizing that it's not only about the grades. I totally agree with that. It's really about like who you are as a person, what you can bring to the class culture, what you can bring to your own personal skill development, regardless of where you are. I 100% think that that is kind of where the first weeks of school need to be focused. I think where, and this whole idea of like the, the authentic A like needs to come from where, where I'm coming, where, where my head is with that. It's like, until that, until that can happen, I guess what I'm just saying is students really need proof for themselves of their own ability. Yeah. You can't, you cannot walk in and tell me that I can do a routine on the balance beam right now. It doesn't matter how much you, you gas me up. Like, I'm, I cannot do a flip on the balance beam, right? I'm going to hurt myself. And so until I, but if I train for that and decide to do that, the first time I land that flip on the balance beam, I'm not going to be Simone Biles, but like, I'll know that I've really done something big and important and that, which that's never going to happen in my whole lifetime. Like I'm never going to land a flip on the balance beam, but that I, I do think about that metaphor a lot of like, what's that moment that I can create for the student in my classroom that 
they know they've done something really special that they hadn't been able to do before. And that, that takes different amounts of time for different students. Yeah, I agree. I think that's where you have to be thinking about like different ways you assess. And this, this gets into that trick, right? Like we yeah. want to be looking in, through different lenses of how to find those strengths in our students. And sometimes it's, a, it's not the same one lens fits all getting back to our conversation about being a different teacher for different students. And this is the paradox. One of many that we're stuck with then is that it takes work as a teacher and intentionality to see those strengths and to look for them a lot of times and to create opportunities for students to show you them because one type of assessment, one type of activity isn't going to illuminate all the students' strengths from the get-go. You have to do the work as a teacher to make that a reality. And I think the other thing, thinking about the pandemic and what I'm trying to be mindful of going into this school year is how you show up in that space matters a great deal. And that combination of being prepared, but also being open and real with them as a person and authentic, like that balance, it's hard in a normal year. It's really hard in this current year. And I think having the humility to like be kind to yourself, if you're not always perfect in that showing up, but also still holding at the top of the mountain, how you show up in that space matters a great deal and i i guess that's for me it's like it's the motivation in these weeks before the school year starts to make sure i have everything laid out as much as i can given variables and circumstances so that i can also be open authentic and flexible with students in that space Mm -hmm. because it those first few weeks as you mentioned are formative and how they will look at your classroom how your they're they talk about your classroom to other students, to their families, and doing everything you can. I think we, if I think about this conversation, we've talked a lot about the obstacles that teachers are going to face going into this year based on the pandemic, based on societal circumstances and discussions, and the lack of grace and generosity that might be a real affliction for many teachers. Yeah. Still, you can hold in one hand that is true, and then the other hand that this is our purpose. This is our calling. And we get to be in a classroom physically with all of our students for the first time in a while, uh, which, and with all of that being said, I want to show up and be the best person and teacher for them that I possibly can be. So that's kind of where I'm trying to hold those two things at the same time right now. Yeah. I have a feeling that the people yelling at school board members about masking don't really care about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that stuff. Yeah, yeah the masks are an interesting thing too. It's a, yeah. it's it's gonna be. There's gonna be a lot of distractions from why we get into this work, and I yeah. think keep it being clear-eyed about that. So, yeah. yeah, on a scale. So let's just do this on a scale of one to seven. How seven being awesome, one being can't even fathom stepping into a classroom right now. Like, what number would you give and why? Mm. Cause I'm going to ask my students something similar. They might as well ask you. I think, yeah, I think um, five, I think mm-hmm. I'm at a five right now because in general, I'm a seven. Yeah. In general, I'm like, I'm thrilled. I'm, th- I, I love it. I'm so excited. I'm, I oftentimes can't sleep the night before the first day of school, which I'm oh. trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get full eight hours the night before, but I, I don't think it's ever happened, but I don't know. I'm so excited. you you really are this very big, even still, which is kind of how I sort of know that I still like it. It's just like the first week it's like exciting. You're building new relationships. It, there's, 
there is a lot of great and positive adrenaline. You're communicating your vision for the class, which is like a deeply personal, exciting thing for you. It's basically the only time in my life where I'm like not speaking in sarcasm to other people. Um, and except for this podcast, I tend, I like that too, but um, yeah, it's typically I'm at a seven. Typically I'm just like really excited. I'm meeting the kids. They're excited. They're trying to do this new fresh start. They're trying to, they've got the big goals and, and uh, it's a fun, fun time. And I'm, but I'm worried. I'm, I have, there's a bunch of other layers of, of anxiety and frustration and, and um, things that I'm just kind of, that are on my mind that it could all be taken away at a moment's notice. And even if it's not taken away at a moment's notice, it's still, there's still going to be a bunch of other problems that we have to solve during the school year that we can't even predict right now that are going to be really challenging. So I would urge, I would, I would challenge anyone listening to this podcast, extend the grace that Marcus was talking about a little bit earlier, because it need, it really is going to be, even though it sort of seems like things are back to normal, they are not back to normal. This is not going to be a normal school year. It's going to be really challenging. The teachers are still going to be stressed. I'm going to be stressed. People are nervous. Yeah. That's where I'm at. Yeah. And then I'd also add, cause I think we parallel each other and our numbers and how we look at the school year is like, if you're listening to this podcast, and you know, some teachers and you, you have thoughts or questions like that, both. And that you hear from teachers is they're both real. Like you mm-hmm. can be concerned about your profession and worried about the school year and still be fully invested in caring about the kids and doing everything you can to make it good. It one does not preclude the other in the same way that, criticizing aspects of our country's history does not mean I don't fiercely love this country and believe and want to work to make it better to think both and yeah. right. Yeah. And I think this school year is a both and school year that there are going to be incredible obstacles and it's going to be trying and parts of me like can't even grapple with what this school year is going to be like, that does not for one second, take away my investment and enthusiasm for doing my best given those circumstances and trying to make it possible. And I'm guessing that's the case for pretty much anyone doing this work. So if you hear a teacher who's talking about something that's hard about this school year, don't assume that that's the full story. And in the same way, when you hear a teacher talking about what's going well, that's probably not the full story either. Just like in life with everyone, there are both sides, both parts are true. So hear the full story of the people around you, hear the full story of teachers and believe both the whole story and know that uh, it, to be fully heard just as a teacher for people to hear your full story. That's the best support we can receive right now. So other than a few extra hours of planning time. Yeah. If you can get us, if you can get us one-to-one planning time, then you have solved education. Yeah. There we go. (laughs) That's the goal of the podcast. I know. Well, I appreciate this conversation. I think this was great. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Marcus. Yeah. Hope you're doing well. And uh, until next time, you got Lucille in the background here. Okay. And signing off. All right, y'all take care.